0: What drives you to make an impact that's less now, today, and more hundreds of years in the future?
1: Well, our children, right? I mean, I decided to work on climate change. I didn't have children at the time, but something's driving you to make that kind of long-term commitment. And so I said the favorite thing I did today was pick up kids from school. I want to keep doing that. I would love to do that one day with grandchildren. And I think the only way to be able to have that dream of a beautiful future is to work on something long-term. And at least for me, that's like something that drives me personally. Three,
0: two, one, Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Segal Barnes. Our guest today specializes in next generation energy technology. He is the first general counsel of Helion, a fusion power company on a mission to enable a future with unlimited clean energy. If you're interested in how law and technology is being used to combat the growing climate crisis, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Sachin Desai. Sachin, welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: So Sachin, I don't know if you know this, but generally, I ask every podcast guest for a little slice of life, a little bit of gratitude. So, if you could tell me what is your favorite moment so far today?
1: Picking up Alora from school. It's always just fun to see them. Like these moments when, like, a two-year-old is happy to see you. I've already lost that with the six-year-old. She's like, "Oh, you're here now. That's great." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I will not regret spending that time.
0: It's like that moment where they see you and their eyes light up. And they're like, daddy, Bobby, and they get so excited. And you're like the joy of being that excited and being able to communicate it in that enthusiastic way.
1: It's like they don't even realize that you exist for a second. And then they turn around like, oh, my God, you're here. This is so wonderful. I was lost in the desert until I saw you.
0: (laughs) So true. I love it. What a great piece of gratitude. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I am going to preface all of this to our listeners by saying, I don't know enough about energy technology or fusion power. And so, Sachin, you're going to have to take me and any other listeners through a little bit of the science as we get through this interview, because I can't wait to learn more about it. But before we do that, I actually want to start a little bit at the beginning, because being a lawyer is actually kind of a second career for you. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I was an aerospace engineer in undergrad, and I did that because of Star Trek and Star Wars and all the other sci-fi shows that follow because I wanted to work on something that drove humanity forward. That was just something that was really exciting. And when I was an aerospace engineer, it may have just been the wrong time or whatever factors, but I wasn't seeing that actually as the biggest problems facing humanity. And I don't mean too dramatic, but it's just like if you're going to spend nine or unfortunately nowadays, like 12 hours a day working on something, like might as well make it something you really, really care about. So I didn't see that aerospace engineering was just for me satisfying that particular need. And then I ended up wondering, you know, I was a consultant, so I could try out a lot of different things. And at some point in time, I just realized that if I'm going to pick something, climate change is the thing I want to work on. I can't say it was a magical single moment. Like I saw a leaf fall down a tree and I'm like, this has to stop. I don't even know if it's nearly that noble, but I'm like, you know what? This seems like a good thing to work on. And so as a consultant, I had a number of clients that were facing really challenging problems. Some of them were energy clients. I was trying to work in the clean energy space. and I noticed that the things that were challenging them wasn't necessarily big business issues at all. It wasn't big at law, like the passage of a new statute or even carbon cap and trade. The problems that were actually facing them were little things. For example, like I was working with a solar company and like just seeing the permitting issues that they were going through at the same time, working with other energy generators And just seeing the day-to-day local laws, all sorts of random things that were affecting them and causing more positive effects and challenges going forward was much more influential on actually whether these technologies were going to succeed. So I was like, this is interesting. You know, I want to work in climate change. It doesn't seem like the biggest way to make an impact is to necessarily work on the business issues. It could be an important way to make an impact, but it wasn't for me. I saw this unique area and I was like, let me try law out. And so far that's been true.
0: That's really fascinating to me that you identified this friction that was happening for organizations. And then you wanted to go in and alleviate that friction in order to help those businesses make a larger impact.
1: You're working for this company. You want to bend the nine to, unfortunately, a lot more than nine, sometimes hours a day making a progress. And these were the issues that were challenging them. Like little l law, which I later learned to be like regulation, local law. It was like, there's so much to law that isn't what Congress passes, right? There's other types of issues to look at. And that was actually where I think a lot of these issues like climate change was tripping up a lot of and no one else wanted to spend time on it. So maybe I, I
0: would try it. I want to back up a little bit because you said I was an aerospace engineer and I did that because of all the sci-fi shows, including Star Trek, which we both know are we're big fans of. And we could have a whole podcast just on that. But at what moment did you realize aerospace engineering is not going to help me move forward in the way I thought it would?
1: It might in some sense been a preview of this. It's like we would just sit at the bar, all just turn 21. And we would complain, for example, about how we can't build high-speed rail. Or we couldn't talk about these other big projects that we thought were like the things that we wanted to do as aerospace engineers. And that's where I started to realize there was actually other issues that were causing these projects to not go forward. We had the technology, right? We don't have high-speed rail here today, for example. And that is certainly not a technological issue because almost every other country in the world at this point has it. And I didn't know what those issues were at that time, but that's what I wanted to explore. So it wasn't that aerospace engineering couldn't, like, wasn't going to solve these problems, but there was just something else here that was bugging me that seemed like there wasn't enough attention on it.
0: Yeah. I also love this image of a whole bunch of college students sitting at a bar being like, why? Like, can't we do anything? I love that image. I love seeing you there with your colleagues doing that.
1: My beer being like, why can't we do that? Actually? I know.
0: <laughs> well, one thing that you did do, though, while you were in college is you sent something into space. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it shaped your shift from aerospace engineering?
1: Sure. Yeah. I'd say that, in sense, that was the peak of my aerospace career. I was able to work on a satellite project, the Cornell University satellite team, and we launched something into space. Actually, in that role, I kind of had that helping things get done project. I was the manufacturing team lead. And as part of manufacturing team, my job was to help get the mechanical side of the program back on track so we could actually build something and launch into space. And it actually was a ton of just getting people to line up paperwork, by the way, aerospace projects have lots of paperwork. I must've had like 20 boxes worth of signatures on where a part was going. (laughs) <laughs> and just handling that process. In a funny way, like a lot of these little things that were part of aerospace or my background all contributed in a little way to bringing me to legal career. I ended up working in a legal role in a weird way for the aerospace project while also, of course, doing technology. Part of that was just to make sure the path was possible. We had to figure out a path to manufacture the satellite and we didn't necessarily know how to do it. And it wasn't, again, a technical problem. We actually could make the components, but how are we going to make it in a manner that like satisfy the requirements of the competition?
0: So you're in college, you're with all of these bright minds about to enter a competition in order to send a satellite into space, which that is mind blowing to me that you were doing that in college. And then you came across all of these things that got in the way of making it happen. And so my understanding is that you took on that role to help the team.
1: Yes, I was actually the propulsion team lead. So I worked in a particularly very technological area. But... One thing I tried to do was just help these I saw these friction points and then ended up getting dragged into it. Because like, well, we need to fix this friction point, otherwise, this propulsion technology is not going to do anything. And that ended up just leading me to work on we actually created this manufacturing process. There's the thing, actually. We actually were able to make a satellite. And then there's all of us want to take that and then go in the future and be like, how do we do that again with a high speed rail, with fusion power plant, with a solar power plant, with anything? And there's like, wow. Maybe you're I mean, like, why can't we do that? This is a journey of discovery. <laughs> After seeing something get built, like <laughs> that frustration or just that interesting insight of like, it's not the technology that's slowing down a lot of these things. It's something else. And then that led from one thing to another, led to where I am today.
0: So you graduate from college, you decide, okay, I'm going to do some consulting for a while. Where did you work? Maybe? I
1: worked consulting. And I was I'll also spent a year working at a research lab in Taiwan on a fellowship. Yeah, that was a fun year. <laughs>
0: What did you do while you were there?
1: Oh, I was working at the Industrial Technology Research Institute. Oh my God, another legal thing with all these little hints. Worked in the technology transfer office. I just worked wherever they were going to place me, but they placed me in the technology transfer office. And My job, actually, this is kind of an interesting side note, is Taiwan was, at that point in time, this is mid-2000s, they're trying to take a number of these OEM manufacturers, companies that were making parts for another brand name, like making stuff for Apple, for example. And then they wanted to actually become their own company. They didn't want to just be the person behind the scenes that was just making parts for a bigger brand. They wanted to have their own brands. Now, if they were to do that, though, they would get sued. Like, they would enter the competitive market and they would sue them. So one thing they were doing was working with the government. This is Taiwan, not China, but this is Taiwan. They was trying to basically buy U.S. patents from, like, research labs so they could have a patent portfolio to defend themselves with once they became, like, a public entity. And, of course, then everyone gets really upset at them and sues them.
0: So you were working on buying the patents?
1: My job, I was a fellow. I don't know if I did any actual work. My job, what I saw was just this process of, of like, I was part of the process of just evaluating patents. Like the job I had was evaluate these patents, see if they're any good or not for these fields of engineering. And then I just ended up spending a lot of time talking to patent lawyers to learn about this whole sector. Again, it's a fellowship. So it was a fun job. It wasn't a difficult job, <laughs> but it was really insightful because you see like the law, the importance of the law. Like they, again, these companies already make the product and in order for them to move on to the next level of their corporate evolution it was actually again a legal issue so here's another engineer trying to do something engineering like running into the law again so that's like the third time that happened
0: <laughs> yeah and you see there are these breadcrumbs right that like sometimes we don't even realize in the process of living through them but they start to shape your trajectory towards the law yeah. okay so you're consulting you do this fellowship and then you decide okay I'm going to go to law school.
1: Because at that point in time, I realized there was something else other than the technology that was holding up deployment of game-changing technologies. And so then when it came time to move on from that job. I was like, I could go to business school, but that doesn't actually seem to be the problem. Or get a PhD. That doesn't actually seem to be the problem. Let me try law. And if law sucked, then I would, I would do something else, right? And maybe that was the key step is not being scared to go into law because I had a, something that was just driving me to do it. A lot of people want to become a lawyer because their parents did it or they want to litigate. And so it's very atypical to come at it from this field. But it was because of these breadcrumbs that said there was something here. There's something here about the law that is going to be very influential on deploying game-changing technologies that could have that kind of sci-fi influence on the world. Let me figure out what it is.
0: So when you went to Harvard, did you have a specific type of law in mind that you thought would help you do that?
1: Environmental law. Because law school doesn't teach you a type of technology. It teaches you a set of tools or a body of law that you can become an expert at. So environmental law is the law around the key environmental statutes that play a role in climate change. So obviously, if I went in, if I wanted to pick the field of climate change, environmental law makes perfect sense. So I guess it was a convergence of two things. It was the convergence of wanting to see how the law could play a role in the deployment of game-changing technologies, to reuse that phrase. At the same time, wanting to spend those Nine plus hours of my day doing something I thought was really, really helpful, as helpful as it could be. I saw that intersection at climate change and clean energy. So, energy is a highly technological field, right? And it's also a field where the solution is obviously focusing on things like stopping polluting activities. But it's also in clean energy, we have to build a solution too. We have to build, you know, actually, do you know this fun fact? If we wanted to get to net zero by 2050, we have to replace a gigawatt a day of fossil fuel generation with clean energy generation. That is one huge power plant has to be built a day around the world every day for the next 30 years.
0: For what not to happen, let's just be clear.
1: For us not to melt the planet. <laughs> and you know the planet will be fine, but all the people on it will be in trouble. So to avoid terrible consequences for humanity and the environment and all of the other organisms on this planet that we share with, we have to do something like that. In addition to taking energy conservation and other actions, we have to actually build our way out of the problem, too. As a society, we need energy security. We've decided, and we I mean, are seeing this, unfortunately, around the world right now, we need to also provide energy to billions of people that don't have it because they're suffering today and they don't care about 2050 and they shouldn't have to care about 2050. They don't have power today. Like, we need to build our way out of this problem.
0: So were there specific law firms that you were looking at that had practices that would fulfill that kind of requirement for you?
1: Now, this is where I really started to so have to stake, not my own path, but couldn't trot a well-laid path. You could go work in environmental law. I learned doing environmental law, but a lot of that is the litigation side of things. Like you're either defending a coal plant or suing a coal plant or defending a solar plant or suing a coal plant. You know, it's, it's more on that side. There is project finance. Personally, I didn't find that to be as interesting, but that's an area where you do contribute to the construction of the new energy technologies. What I actually ended up going towards largely, it was at the time, nuclear fission power. When he looked into this field, he found out that fission contributes 50% of the clean energy in the United States. So we haven't actually built a new fission power plant in a long time. We finished some construction projects. We're actually about to finish maybe a couple other new fission power plant construction projects, but we haven't actually built one in a long time, yet it is so powerful, a clean energy generator, that it still provides half of our clean energy, just on what we built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so back then, it was actually essentially all of our clean energy generation outside of hydro. It was one of those areas where it's very much a thing of building it is a challenge. It has an immense impact on clean energy. And it's a very technically complicated area. So having an aerospace background was a little bit helpful. And no one else wanted to work in it. So I thought it was really cool. (laughs) So It made it easier to get into. I tried an internship at a venture law firm's clean energy practice. But I thought that was not exactly how I wanted to use the law in this area. I worked at the Department of Energy in a clean energy program and trying to help them. So I tried these different areas out. I first clerked at a courthouse in DC, Court of Federal Claims. But then I tried doing another clerkship at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and their Atomic Safety Licensing Board panel. And that was the way I was going to try out nuclear. Because I was coming to this point, I was like, well, this is a field that has a lot of really interesting legal issues, but also technical issues and potential impact. So I did two years there. I was actually planning to stay at the agency, but then the government was doing this whole thing with sequestering and not hiring. So I ended up getting offered to work at a private law firm in nuclear regulatory and stayed there. That whole time, I was trying to work on the advanced next generation nuclear reactors that have the ability to you know, transform the nuclear industry as we know it. And then I learned about fusion. And this is where the perfect sci-fi part, (laughs) like the aerospace background, meets really interesting legal issues that affect deployment of clean energy. If you hear about fusion energy, you think it's probably 50 years away. But it's exciting because it's an energy technology where no one knows it even exists as energy technology, right? But it is potentially one of the most defining energy technologies we could ever have. The way I think about it is if you look in a sci-fi story, if you look in a utopian sci-fi story, fusion energy is there. If you look at a dystopian sci-fi story, oftentimes it's a lack of energy. The energy sources have been polluting and destroying the world. Fusion is one of the triggers between our future being a positive future or a negative future.
0: So what is it about fusion energy that's not getting adopted as fast as potentially we'd like to if it's such a game changer?
1: This is fundamentally still a technological issue. Fusion is the merger of two light atoms. It's a very different process than nuclear fission or solar or wind or fossil generation. It's a very novel process. However, if it works, it has the ability to have all the benefits of all the other forms of energy generation combined. A fusion power plant can be very compact, still put out consistent, what they call base load power, power that doesn't fluctuate up and down. It can be mass manufactured. And while every energy source has hazards associated with it, the hazards would be akin to many other industrial facilities. So it has the potential to basically have the clean energy benefits of solar and wind but the reliability of a natural gas plant or a nuclear power plant. So we could bring everything together. The problem is it doesn't actually work just yet. (laughs) We're close though. So it takes an incredible amount of energy to bring two hydrogen atoms together. I can get into the technology and let me know if I'm just getting way too down a a well here.
0: No, I love learning about this.
1: So for fusion to work, you need to merge light elements together. It could be isotopes of hydrogen, isotopes of hydrogen, helium, any sort of like small number on the periodic table. But you're trying to merge the two nucleus of these two atoms together. They're both positively charged. If you take any two positively charged things and try to bring them together, they repel each other. How do you bring them together? You have to inject a lot of energy into those ions. So they're flying around. They're going super fast. They'll get over their repulsion effect and then start to get closer to where they merge. And when that merger happens, due to whatever magic nuclear physics that exists, <laughs> they release energy. The problem has been the amount of electricity we spend to get those ions to high enough energies where they fuse always takes way more than the power we get out because of the inefficiency of the approaches we're taking. Hmm. But what's happened though, is over 50 years or 60 years of development, our process has been getting better and better to merge those two ions. To the point of, now there are companies like Helions that believe they can break that threshold and produce more electricity, not even just energy, but more electricity out from fusion than in by 2024. So for example, Helions built six devices under its approach, that each one doing better and better and better and getting a little bigger, a little different, a little more evolved, obviously, as we learn as you go, to the point that now we're at this critical juncture. Helio's is not the only company pursuing fusion. There's actually 20 plus companies in the United States that are pursuing fusion. But it's based on this trend of a number of hard work over time over the last 50, 60 years, where we're starting to get to the point where we can cross that threshold and start to produce more electricity out than in.
0: So let me just recap this to make sure that I understand what you just said. In order to create fusion energy that would eventually be able to be the clean energy that we need to stop relying on energy that's potentially hurting our planet but could then help our planet, we need to to create the combination of the nucleuses of two atoms that are positively charged and don't want to be combined and figure out how to do that. But it takes an immense amount of energy to even get that done or electricity to get that done. So it's difficult to figure out how to do that at scale. It would take a very long time or it takes a lot of resources. But over the many years, we've been able to figure out how to reduce that amount of energy in order to get that to happen.
1: Or, yeah, have technologies that are more efficient at merging those two atoms. So, yes, we don't need so much input energy to make it work. Got it. There's more to it. There's like a whole story of enabling technologies that have happened. For example, like our approach requires fiber optic cables, power semiconductors, things actually unrelated to Fusion that have evolved over the last 20 years that have helped this journey upward. Mm-hmm. But maybe we say that for a future sci-fi blog where we get into real detail. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: absolutely. But I think this was just the right amount of information to like help me and potentially our listeners who are not familiar with the science around this to get a better grasp and get our head around what we're talking about here. So now that we understand like what Helion does, help me understand the landscape here as it relates to Helion and all these other companies. Is there some sort of collaboration or is it like a a race to whoever gets to the finish line first?
1: I think largely it is a friendly competition at this point. And then the way we also think about it is a little bit more geopolitical. We're not the only country engaged in fusion. There are other countries engaged in fusion. To go back to patents, one thing I do on the side with the company is I help manage our patent work. And I was looking up something and I saw that after we had hit a key 2021 milestone, another company, in this case in China, a state-owned enterprise, had started up an identical fusion program to what we were doing. And they could have done it very much on their own. I'm not trying to say they, they copy it. We don't have any evidence of anything, but it was just interesting to see that there are other countries now pursuing these approaches to fusion. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important, at least for us, we feel to get it right here, because we have not only just this competition among peer entities, but these competitions among countries and controlling the future of energy.
0: So there's a collaboration. You're clearly competitors in some ways.
1: All with selling electricity, so yes.
0: (laughs) But there is also at the same time a collaboration from a regulatory perspective.
1: Regulatory, you know, engagement with the government or with other stakeholders. There's many things that we share common issues on, like Right. safe and efficient deployment, especially when we're all trying to figure out the technology works. There's no need for us to necessarily be engaged and cut through a competition
0: before. Absolutely not. I always find that really fascinating when you see people that are trying to achieve the same thing and trying to go to market with the same things. But there's a shared interest or right. many shared interests that also create a collaboration that benefits everyone.
1: Let me say that this is not... Like Helion's official position. So let me lawyer it up for a second here. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to speak about myself and what I view. I'm not speaking for Helion or its official policies.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for lawyering it up, and I think all the lawyers listening will one hundred percent appreciate that. One other thing on the science, because I had just read something and it just blew my mind a little bit, where it says that nuclear and fusion power are actually opportunities for deep space exploration. I know this is not what Helion does or like what the goal is, but can you tell me just a little bit about what that means? How deep of space could fusion bring us?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, this is Helion is not pursuing a, a space fusion technology. Mm-hmm. What I'll say about fusion in space with fusion energy, we have the ability to not have to rely on the sun for power or a small radioisotope. And this is one of the differences I think. Talk about nuclear power versus fusion power. One thing that both offer in space travel is the ability to have power far away from the sun, right? Solar panels are how many things are powered right now, or batteries, but usually solar panels. And when you get to Mars, like the sun isn't like actually that big anymore. (laughs) It looks more and more like just another star in the sky. And so you actually can't use solar power to do a number of activities. And also, then it's not exactly a huge energy generation source. So fission, like particularly radioisotopes, like those provide a fair amount of power in a very small space. And that's why you have rovers on Mars. Like you can use a rover on Mars that uses solar panels. But a lot of the newer technologies that are being deployed for these kinds of semi-deep space applications use fission radioisotopes. But that is obviously a very complex technology to use. It has radiation. You have to manage a number of issues. What fusion offers is basically to go a level higher. Again, you don't need the sun to produce fusion energy. The fuel for a fusion power plant can fit in like the size of the desk I'm sitting on. So you can bring it with you to space to last 50 years. But it puts out megawatts of power, not kilowatts of power. Here's an example of where this can, might actually have applications. This is my favorite. This is this project they're trying to do in space or in NASA where they want to use the sun as a gravitational lens, a gravitational telescope. So a telescope has like two lenses, right? Or a lens and a focal point. The sun is so big it curves space time, so it actually acts like a lens. Wow. And so if you put the receiving end, like this is like 90 or 100 AU away, so like super far away, you can actually turn the sun into the biggest telescope you could ever imagine. So strong that you could look at planets, you could see mountain ranges on planets like tens to maybe hundreds of light years away. We could actually not just like, try to explore space, like life on other planets, we could see them. (laughs) And I actually wonder if there's probably a civilization out there that's looked at us.
0: I was literally just thinking that. I'm like, if there was another alien beings that had higher technology than us, that might be one of the technologies.
1: This is something we could do in 50 years. So NASA wants to do this, or people in NASA want to do this, but to deploy it right now, they essentially want to use a solar sail to lift a really, really small device that weighs, I can't remember the exact numbers, but grams or a very small size. Use a, a constellation of them. It takes years and years and years, if not decades, to get out to that point. And then you can only take really small images. The device can't stop. It actually just keeps floating away. And you use the sun for the moment that you have it. I mean, the opportunity is so great that people want to pursue it. But it's this kind of suboptimal solution. Yeah. If you had fusion work in space or on Earth, or you took the fusion device, you could take a helium device, eventually, and one day put it on a spacecraft. You could get there in a couple of years. You could have people do it. You could have people sitting up there with the telescopes because you'd have 100 megawatts of power. You could have a heated spaceship have a greenhouse. You could have that future. That is one of the key enabling technologies to making the kind of science future we want happen. And this brings it back to like the sci-fi interest. Like this is actually, I was looking at aerospace. I was like, I wasn't seeing that kind of, for me, that really amazing science fiction future. But fusion actually makes that opportunity possible long-term.
0: What I think is so fascinating about the work that you do is that you speak about the work in such long-term impact. You know, a lot of times whether you're a lawyer or not, like we work on things that have short-term impact, or even if it's long-term impact, we think in maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years. But you're talking about things that are 50 years, 100 years, 500 years. The impact continues beyond like a lifespan. What drives you to make an impact that's less now, today, and more hundreds of years in the future?
1: Well, our children, right? I mean, I decided to work on climate change. I didn't have children at the time, but something's driving you to make that kind of long-term commitment. And so I said the favorite thing I did today was pick up Laura from school. I want to keep doing that. I would love to do that one day with grandchildren. I'd love to keep doing that. And I think the only way to be able to have that dream of a beautiful future is to work on something long term. And at least for me, that's like something that drives me personally.
0: I think it's very admirable also because it's not always easy to stay motivated when it's not you who gets to see the end result.
1: We're going to see a commercial fusion power plant by the early 2030s, if not earlier, actually. So I am not like all altruistic. There's actually a commercial product here that will be seen, and I hope dang well to see it pretty soon. <laughs> so it, there's a lot of selfishness involved in this one. But I think that's what makes Fusion exciting is it's now tripped from this purely altruistic 50-year endeavor to something that we can actually make happen. And that's why they need lawyers, too, at the end of the day. Right. And we're shifting now from not just being a technology, but to being a deployed product.
0: Clearly there's milestones, very significant ones, but you're never going to get, I mean, let's hope you could see it in our lifetime, but you're never going to get to the Star Trek dream, the place where everything's been solved and we don't have to worry about the planet anymore and everyone's good to go when it comes to energy.
1: I don't work out and eat healthy enough to see that future. I know. I know into this,
0: <laughs> well, Who knows? Maybe we will. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the work you do, maybe that will have that impact faster than I think. But There is something to be said about saying my part is a small part of a larger progress, and I am excited to be part of that, even if I don't see the final result of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we will see a lot of initial results. But yeah, the future that we're talking about, the future that we're bringing up right now is that full, clean energy, 100% electricity on the grid future. And then from there, like humanity's movement into the solar system. Yes, if we're talking that far out, there's a point where obviously that's going to take hundreds, all these sci-fi shows take place hundreds of years in the future.
0: I know. I wish I could live that long to see it, though.
1: I do think with Fusion, we'll see a lot of amazing progress in the next set of years and decades. But yes, it's part of a burger story, right? Of like advancing human civilization. And that's just fascinating. I mean, we all have to do things to earn a living. We're still lawyers, got a mortgage, got kids at school. So I've been very lucky to have like stumbled on this trail of breadcrumbs into a career that I feel like allows me to do that while still also paying the mortgage, a career that's a paying job that allows me to do this. It's just super lucky.
0: Talk to me about your family. Talk to me about your wife. You guys met in law school, right? We always need our partners to be on board.
1: Yeah. Obviously couldn't do any of this without her. I did go to the business school a couple times, usually because they had better food. But then there was one like seminar or after class activity that I listened to that I is the one thing I honestly take away from business school. And it was some person retired. People asked him, like, what made you successful? And he said, I married the right person. And it's the only thing I remember out of business school, and it was probably one of the most useful lessons that I've ever learned in my whole life. And so I was dating the right person at the time, and I decided, well, we'll just wrap this up. And I proposed to her the start of the third year of law school. Actually, we started dating in some random moment. She brought, she's going to hate me saying this on my podcast, <laughs> but she said, like, whatever happens, just like, let me know where this is going by the start of the third year of law school. And <laughs> this was like the two weeks in. Well, this is setting some deadlines. And so the first day of the third year of law school, I proposed to her. I remembered that.
0: (laughs) I love that you remembered that. And I love that you were like, I will make sure that I am right on time.
1: Yeah. All the things, all the commitments I haven't kept, such as like remembering to get this or that. I did remember that one.
0: Finding the right partner is so key. I couldn't have done half the things that I've been able to do today without mark my husband like we really are such a team talk to me about the teamwork between you what does that collaboration look like
1: we're around we help each other we want to support each other you communicate the communication is actually very basic but frequent from everything from who's going to get the kid today to like when something crappy happened at work like spending time to just complain about it because then usually it is not that big a deal it almost never is taking walks at night to just be there for each other because the stuff is tiring it's you know we work too hard as a people Hopefully with unlimited clean energy, we can work a little less, frankly. But we worked also because there's really important things we have to do. And so what Ankara does for me and what I probably pay in some small fraction back to her is just give her the energy to keep going.
0: I love that there's like this whole theme of energy. (laughs) That's right. It's like you're providing each other energy. You're working with energy. You're really trying to create something really wonderful for yourself and your family. It all kind of comes together in this really beautiful way.
1: And it gives us the energy to keep going. You know, we thought maybe getting married, having kids would be actually uh, a barrier to professional success, but it has actually for us been the driver of like our success. Anka does done extremely well and is like a much smarter person than me and much better lawyer than me. But not only does our, like our family give us the strength to like, to give us the drive to want to keep working and keep doing things, not just for like, we have to feed them, but because we want to see this world succeed that they can live in. But it also getting off of work at whatever hour, spending time with the family, it gives you the energy to do it the next day. I actually think if without them, like it would be harder for me to keep up this momentum.
0: I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I don't even know that up until this point, I fully put all of that together for myself. Like it is what drives me, but I don't know that I've ever, ever actually connected that from my heart to my mind.
1: just create this long-term sense of world. Like you're more attached to the world now than in a way that we've never been before. And we're more invested in its success and us being contributors to it because we have a real stake in the game.
0: That's beautifully put. Truly. And as much as I would actually want to continue this conversation, I do want to get to the question of why a company like Helion would need a lawyer, but also what are the specific things that you're doing to really help the company move forward as a lawyer?
1: We have a new energy technology, right? So it's certainly an interesting question. Like, how do we deploy this technology? Uh, and that is like the regulatory framework that we talked about. It is like, how do we work with utility customers to customers for this ephemeral future technology. It's all the little stuff. And one thing I try to do in this job is just make it easier for our company to deploy like faster and safer. And that means sometimes doing the stuff no one else wants to do. That's obviously, that's one of the jobs of a lawyer, frankly. (laughs) Reading the long documents no one else actually wants to read. And funny thing, at the end of all this journey of legal discovery, like just being around to help is probably the one thing I do for this job.
0: To me, it's very clear why a company like Helion would need a lawyer. But because you're the first general counsel of Helion, what does it look like to be the first general counsel of an organization?
1: There's a constant, frequent conversation of like, why are you here? Hmm. Right? <laughs> why are we spending money on this particular person and not another plasma physicist or electrical engineer? And not to so say negatively, it's, it's actually, a, oh, we have a lawyer now. Like, what do we need a lawyer for? And then they very quickly realize all the things that hopefully make their jobs easier by having a lawyer. And that could be like helping figure out how we're going to do very basic corporate functions. We have outside counsel that have always helped us, but now we can make the CEO's job easier. Or the biggest part of my job has been on regulatory. So helping the company find the regulatory path forward for safe deployment is something that's like, oh, turns out we need to think about that now. <laughs> or like, oh, we buy, like we're not just buying, like we're advancing as an organization. We're not just buying like stuff on Amazon anymore like, or the Amazon equivalent for metal we need to like, engage in custom contracts to buy millions of dollars of components. It's like, oh, it'd be nice if someone knew how to write a contract. <laughs> oh, so it didn't say we're just giving you money for free here, supplier. And so like, that's the stuff where I think it's constantly that, like, oh, you're right. This is something we need that a lawyer could help with.
0: <laughs> how long has Helion been in business for?
1: Since 2013. But the year before I joined, it was like a 30-person company. Now we're at 125, maybe 130 by the time of this podcast. By the time it's aired, I hope to say 150. So we're growing so fast that it is very much now a large business or a medium-sized business that we're trying to run here to make fusion happen.
0: It's fascinating because when you first start a business, you know, they probably used outside counsel for a very long time. I'm assuming they actually got you from their outside counsel.
1: That's correct. I was outside regulatory counsel. So I was energy regulatory. That makes sense. To <laughs> the point where the billing rate, where the bill got too high and they're like, this is just cheaper to have you work for us. <laughs> right.
0: So yeah, for a while you use your outside counsel and, and then as you develop and grow and mature as an organization, you start to realize, okay, like we need more of that in-house expertise and bringing someone that really understands your business, has passion for the mission that you have and has the experience with you for so long. So it seems like you're a valuable asset to them.
1: Well, you should relay that. to me.
0: <laughs> Well, hopefully someone from Helion is listening. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Let's get to some rapid fire questions. After everything we've talked about, your entire journey, all of the things that we've discussed, what do you think leadership in law really means?
1: Uh, A lot of my job is making it easier for the company to do its job. So trying to make it easier for others and enabling something to happen. So leadership in law from an in-house general counsel perspective is taking those first steps, doing the stuff no one else wants to do, doing those actions to make the company and the people that work for that company and our mission move forward.
0: Leadership can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And I think empowering others to achieve great things is a very strong sign of leadership. All right, next question. If there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be?
1: Working together. This is more going to reflect on my time at a law firm. Lawyers are held up as like this one entity, this one person that knows everything about this subject. Think like, oh, I have a car crash. I need to talk to a lawyer. I have to license a fusion power plant. I need to talk to a lawyer. And we actually don't know everything. People come to us and they're like, what does this reg say? Like, why did it say this? I have no idea. I'm at the coffee shop right now and you called. And so I think, today you step back, I think it's like, we should not be so held out as like these individual experts. We should be looking at this as like a team. So one thing that Helion does extremely well is we have a regulatory team. And it is me, it is a physicist, the chief business officer, and then the CEO will join at times. But it's this collective group of people with different skills. And I think we've done a very good job developing like a safe and effective framework for fusion energy and a path forward to deploying this technology, because we actually all work together. We all admit when we don't know something and we all share ideas and then get feedback from people that are totally outside of our field. And I think that results in a better product. Now, if you do that in a private law firm, like you have four people, oh, it's like $4,000 an hour. I can't afford this. But we need to move away, I think, eventually from this idea of like each individual lawyer as its own expert, like we have to move towards teams people that help check each other's work. So much legal advice is given at three in the morning by like one person that writes an email to another person. This can't be accurate. Organization has to move towards people working together to develop a product. Somehow to do that cost effectively, I'm not sure how, but that's going to result in helping companies and individuals move forward better with their lives.
0: Lawyers need to work a little bit less as silos and more as a team in order to gain all the different perspectives in a way that's cost efficient, but also provides all of the success and yeah. insight that like, diversity of thought can bring. And there shouldn't be this expectation
1: that each individual lawyer is this totemic pillar of knowledge. And that's how you're graded on, right? Like basic skill of a lawyer is sometimes the ability to read a long document. It is not actually what we know. It's what we can learn and translate and deliver to others. So I feel like a lot of law is about going to this person and expecting them to know everything. And then the culture and the community is built on that. We should instead like start from the ground up. That's not your expectation. Your expectation is to work as a team and to help work with others to figure out solutions.
0: Great answer. What's a piece of practical advice to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders looking to follow your lead.
1: If there's something you feel like you want to work in, right, like there's dire challenges everywhere, like it's healthcare or world hunger. There are areas that you can work in that like seem appealing at the start, that are flashy. But usually most of the progress is in the more mundane part of life. It is I'm trying to think of an example outside of the law that might be a little better. But
0: I have one. Do you want to hear mine?
1: Yes, yes, I want to hear yours.
0: Just cause we talk about being parents too. It's like, yes, you can take your kids to Disney World, right? Or you can take your kids on a really fancy vacation, but it's the everyday interactions with them. That can sometimes seem mundane, those putting on the shoes, having those small conversations that really makes them who they are and really shapes their experiences and who they can be. So that's kind of what I was thinking when you were saying that.
1: Exactly it. If you want to add value, I think it's in those mundane parts, right? Because that's what's going to influence whether our children are succeed or not. It's not the trip to Disney World. It is negotiating they don't eat six bags of candy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One bag
0: of candy. We're actually this podcast recording is happening November 9th. It's like a week after Halloween, which is to many parents the sugar apocalypse. So I totally hear you. I love that. Finding it in the mundane is so true. What is your favorite self-care practice?
1: Making sure I spend time with my children every day. Taking time out to spend time with our children is, or at least for me, is what helps me have energy to keep doing this job. Otherwise, if I was just me, like I'd probably actually burn out in three weeks. I'd just like work all the time and then have a collapse. Mm And it's actually taking that time out to spend it with the family that I find really energizing. It's also super tiring, physically tiring, but mentally quite energized. And then doing that every day and make sure you take out time to do that or to pick kids up from the school. This is how I think we keep doing this.
0: That's right. I feel the same way. I think that it's very tiring. But having those moments and pushing through the tiredness actually like psychologically makes me proud and happy.
1: Like that's what's going to keep me going a year from now. It's not going to be this one walk or this one night or something like that. That's all very important. But it's like this consistent time with our family that what gives us energy year after year to keep working.
0: Well, Sachin, I really enjoyed this conversation so much. If someone wanted to chat with you about your work or talk to you about sci-fi stuff, what is the best way to connect with you?
1: LinkedIn is pretty good. I'm not always checking it every day, but I do try to respond to every message I get.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all that you do. Maybe we can catch up in another year and hear how things are going in Helion.
1: Absolutely. We'll do the sci-fi blog in a year. And at that point, we can get to a lot of detail.
0: (laughs) I would love that. Thanks so much, Sachin. Take care. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE, and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with over a 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.